Some of you noted on my social media, if you're friends with me, that I uh, said on Thursday, which is typically my put-it-all-together sermon writing day, um, that I had afternoon coffee, which I don't normally do. I don't normally do caffeine after 11 because I'm still sensitive to caffeine. It's weird. Like, my body will be tired, but my brain will be like, ooh, let's solve the problem of relativity again. Um, some of you noted that I said um, afternoon coffee is amazing. Um, I'm hearing color. Sermon's going to be long. Uh, To those of you that are hypoglycemic, I hope you have your emergency snack nearby. To those of you that just get a little hangry because you went light on the breakfast, sorry. Let's pray that what I have to say is actually important. There was a scandal that broke. Of course, maybe uh, you heard about it, or maybe you've just grown tired of all the scandals de jour. Mid-name, mid-level celebrities, other people with means and influence, using college admissions to get their kids into the right school at the right time for the right reasons. What else is new? Here's the thing, though. David Zoll, who was the founder of the website Mockingbird.com, Great guy, by the way, has a book coming out soon that I'm really interested in reading. Um, mbird.com, if you're taking notes, if you want to go back and listen on the podcast, is, is never fails to be a fascinating website. Um, very thoughtful, uh, well worth your time. He had an article published, it was an op-ed um, in the religion section of the Washington Post yesterday, and it was too good to pass up this quote, um, he, wherein he says this, a friend once told me, if you're having trouble understanding fanatical behavior, trace the righteousness that's at play, and things will become clear. Okay? This helps explain why someone might commit felonies to circumvent the university's front door. Actions like these reflect a society in which success, not goodness, has become our, our highest virtue. Maybe that's always been that way. But here's what I want you to hear, and I don't want you to miss this. Whatever the case, security and respect are not the only things at stake here. Identity and worth, even functional salvation, are involved for child and parent alike. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor thinks about this existential anxiety in his book um, uh, that he wrote, predicted, so uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor predicted that the further we retreat From a shared religious experience, the more contenders would emerge to harness its place. The more we retreat from a shared religious experience, the more contenders would emerge to compete, to vie for its place. He called this, Taylor called this, the Nova effect, likening it to an explosion of religious pluralism. Perhaps it's time to add parenting 
to the growing list of replacement religions competing for our attention and currency these days. A list that already includes workism and politics. In a word, it all comes down to identity. We are, as a society, awash where everyone is trying to be a part of the majority identity. That's why the current beast, the current snake that's eating its own tail is identity politics. Everyone is trying to get the right look, the right political correctness, the right um, list of must-haves and can't-stands. It's like that great philosophical sage of our modern day, Dr. Seuss. In his incredibly insightful book, The Star-Bellied Sneetches, when all of a sudden, a fix-it-up chappy comes to town, to put stars on the bellies of the Sneetches that have not. And then when the Sneetches that have not have stars on their bellies, the ones that did have stars on their bellies, all of a sudden they're like, well, we don't want that anymore. And the fixes up Chappie right there with his machines and his money kept collecting. Well, I've got a machine right here that'll take the stars right off your bellies. And as Seuss does, and in ways that only Seuss can, the Sneetches are running in and out of both machines, stars on and stars off and stars on and stars off, as fast as they can hand out the money, and the fixes up chappies just collecting it all. Eventually, it's so confused and so muddled, they don't know who had stars and who didn't after all. Identity politics is an end in itself that will eventually implode. In a, in, a, in, a, in a world, in a time, in a place where you're competing to have the right everything, the right look, the right degree, the right pedigree, the right zip code, the right designs. And, and what happens if you're lacking in these things? You're like the star-bellied Sneetches that were first had none. You're a pariah. You're nothing. An outcast, a square peg amid round holes. And the piranhas circle around you. And this is why people go to great lengths to not stand out, to not suffer the social cost and the stigma of having the wrong identity at the wrong time. What does this have to do with Philippians? Everything. A Roman province where generals went to retire. A place built on Rome's ideals. The majority culture was Rome. The majority deities were pagan. The majority ideas, secular. The church, marginalized, outcast, seemingly insignificant and lacking any of the power or collateral to do anything about it. And so what does Paul do? Does he organize a political action committee? Start trying cases in court. Start writing op-eds. Start decrying the way things used to be in the good old days when everyone just pretended it was better. No. 
They weren't Romans. His church at Philippi. They didn't bow to the spirit of the age. They stood out like sore thumbs and they were suffering all the cost. Paul had lots to say to them about this. He was, he was bringing them back from the mountaintop, this beautiful Christological hymn of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. What does that have to do with this text? It has everything to do with this text. It helps us understand what the therefore is there for. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Let me invite you to turn there. So we can think about this, so what, about what he just finished talking about. Stand if you would. Let's hear God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Grant us grace and grant us mercy, O God to see Jesus in him only. Would you shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow such as me? For all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You see it. Three things I want you to see. Having the mind of Christ. That was Paul's whole thing. Have therefore the mind of Christ. And then he goes in, in Philippians 2, and says this is exactly what the mind of Christ was. That Jesus humiliated himself. He humbled himself at every turn, at every point. Jesus was the one humbling himself, even to the point of death on a cross. Have therefore the mind of Christ among you. Having that mind, we must now work out our salvation. Three points. In hopeful obedience, in humble contentment, and in joyful sacrifice. Okay? Here's the first one, in hopeful obedience. I have been so profoundly shaped over the last many years by a concept that I've come to learn as the gospel waltz. And in fact, it's been so influential to me that I'm now making everybody that comes through Discover MPC to watch a 25-minute talk on it. Because I think it's that important. Okay? In each component... Um, Though each one is important on its own, if you separate them or miss any of the steps, it ceases to become a waltz. What's a waltz? It's a dance, right? One, two, three. One, two, three. It's a three-step dance, right? If you take one of the steps out, it becomes a two-step. Who does a two-step, Texans? (laughs) If you omit that second step and it becomes a one-step, it's a bunny hop. Not very waltzy, if you ask me. So, here's where it's been profoundly 
important for me to study this, understand this, internalize this, okay? When most of us think about what the imperatives of Scripture are for, when most of us think about what the, um, when the Scriptures say, therefore, do this, here is the predominant Western Protestant evangelical answer to that question. Scripture says, do this. I instead do that. I go, ooh, that's not the way Christians are supposed to live. So what do I do? I resolve in my heart to do better and try harder. This is the steady diet that our kids have grown up on, you and I have grown up on, our parents have grown up on, our forebears in the faith have fought about this idea. Do better, try harder. So you find yourself in the midst of being, um, in the midst of trying to live as a Christian. This is your default drive. I promise you, this is your default drive if you're being honest about it. It's what we do. Did you mess up? Do better, try harder. Do you want to change? Fantastic. Do better, try harder. Stop it. Want to stop spending so much money? Stop it. Want to quit being an addict? Stop it. Right? Here's the problem with that. While it sounds Christian, it is toxic. Why? Why is it toxic? Does the Bible want us to obey? Of course the Bible wants us to obey. Does the Bible want us to see and admit and understand that we have messed up in thought, word, and deed, both by what we have done and by what we have left undone in failing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves? Of course it does. But do you know why it's so toxic? Because do better and try harder has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with you white-knuckling it and getting better. There's no gospel in that. There's no good news in that. There's no announcement of what God has done on your behalf and what God is still continuing to do on your behalf. There's no pouring out of the spirit. There's no cleaving of your heart. There's no changing of the inner man into into less and less of yourself and more and more like Jesus. It's just God standing up in heaven saying, would you get with it already? And that's toxic. Because eventually... You figure out that you don't have the stamina, the wherewithal, the good, um, the good intentions or anything else. So you just give up on trying and you start pretending. You start dying a little more inside because you can't get better and God doesn't seem to care. There's just disappointment and determination. I messed up, I'll get better. I messed up, I'll get better. So Paul just finished talking about having the mind of Christ, all right? I pushed us uh, in these last, uh, the two weeks I spent on the previous passage in Philippians 2 to see that Jesus is not just the the exemplar, um, the excellent example. It's much more than that. Jesus is our enabler. Jesus is the power of God at work in us, not just the example of God that we should try to emulate. We need to repent. 
We do. We need to believe by both appreciating what Jesus has done and appropriating the present work of the power of the gospel, the power of the blood, the power of the spirit in our lives to believe that, what, that, that God is still in the business of supernaturally raising dead people to life and putting broken things back together. And that doesn't come by white knuckle effort that comes by a supernatural intersection of the spirit and us. So you can't hear what we're talking about today without hearing what Paul has said in verses 5 through 11. That the very work of Christ is the work that is now at play in his people. Work out your salvation, Paul says. This is in result, in response to all that Jesus has done and is still doing. He says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. This is the result. This is the response to all that Jesus has done and is doing. Jesus coming near, being made low, taking flesh, taking a servant's towel, taking a criminal's cross, dying a sinner's death, raised a victorious life and exalted as king and Lord over all. This heart-stretching, others-facing love that we do is in response to the very love that we have been shown and the very love that is at work dynamically by the power of the Holy Spirit in in our lives. This is not an invitation to be kind. This is not an invitation to be nice or a little more generous. This is a summons to die. Put that on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. Go ahead. I'll wait. It's not an invitation to kindness. It's not an invitation to a genteel world. This is a summons to your own death so that you can have life. Paul's extraordinarily practical. He says, as you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more so in my absence. We all know how easy it is to be a people of the cross when we are being inspired when we've come back from a conference or a retreat or when people are watching. (laughs) It's much more difficult to be a people of the cross when there's no one to impress, when it's just us. But see, here's the thing. Paul's not setting them up for failure here. Paul is is so sure of the power of the gospel that's at work in them, the power of the spirit that has come down, that has been poured out into their hearts, into their lives. He's so sure of that power that's at work in them that the spirit has been poured out, that the risen Christ that they are united to is at work in them, that he is able to say that not only does he think they can hang on, but they can actually grow in Paul's absence, much more so than they could grow if he was present there with him. And this is parts two and three of that waltz. Paul is giving them the divine mystery of these two essential components. Fight 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work hard. Put to death the things that are, that need to die. It is a summons to die, but also believe because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. See, this isn't like some of you have been conditioned to believe where you believe that God does the miraculous saving part where it's grace. And then now you get to work out your salvation and you better not screw it up. It's all lies. It's all lies. It's soul-crushing, joy-stealing lies to believe that now God is sitting up there with a stopwatch and a clipboard and a score chart watching your life, watching you fall down and feeling like he wasted his grace on you. Do you hear me? The supernatural work where God saved you is the same grace wherein God promises not just to save you, but to sustain you. Where God promises to shape you and change you more and more and more into the image of the Son whom he loves. Because, and hear it, because he loves you. He set his affection on you. He has bound himself in covenant love to you, saying that he will be your God and we will be his people and he will neither leave, abandon, or abdicate his throne because he is committed to us and there is no one, no thing, nothing in the universe that can subvert him, that can change him, that can overpower him, that can conquer him, for he is the king, he is the creator, he is the sovereign, he is the Lord. Because it's God who pursues us, God who provides for us, God who progressively changes us. Now, this also means that we don't sit back and say, come on, God from whom all blessings flow. That's not a posture of love. That's, an imp- that's a posture of an entitled person sometimes my filter catches things that was weird i also believe that james can edit me on the sermon i just don't want to put that power to the test there is a dance a divine embrace and our faithful god who called us out of death into life will also cause and cultivate our growth in him as we fight using all of the tools that are at our disposal but it's not just our own personal growth and holiness that paul is concerned about here now here's something that i'm going to say to you that is going to be disappointing to you but it's up to me to bring bad news it's my role at the party We are far too conditioned to read scripture in individualistic terms. There is a comprehensiveness to the gospel. It is not just God and me and that's all I need. Paul has concerns for the church and the church is a corporate unit. Can I just can I say this? It's always we before me in scripture. it's always we before me. 
So as we're talking about things that we have grown up to erroneously believe, the greatest single problem in the church today is that too many people have a personal relationship with Jesus because they've made it me before we. Get what I'm saying? Can't have unity if it's all about you. Can't work out your salvation with fear and trembling if it's your salvation and not our salvation. Oh, now wait a minute. Now he's gone from preaching to meddling. What if that's what Paul meant? What if he actually meant that part of work out your salvation with fear and trembling means we before me, and that means dying to myself for the sake of the other? Well, see, that's where he's going, right? I mean, it is me as well, but let's not be injurious to the text. Let's not try and divide what Scripture never in time, what Scripture always intended to see as a cohesive whole. There is both need to work on our corporate salvation and need for us to work on our interpersonal unity with fear and trembling, with the same fortitude, the same grace reliance, the same, um, the same energy and stamina that we would use to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that gets inconvenient real quick, doesn't it? Work out your salvation. Okay, I'm going to put my scripture verse on my bathroom mirror, and I'm going to put my scripture verse on my dashboard, not cover up the check engine light because apparently that's bad, but I'm going to put my scripture verse right here, and I'm going to be good, and I'm going to be good, and I'm going to be good, and I can't take that phone call right now because I'm working on being good and working out my salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-mm. No, what if it's we before me? What if it's my life for yours? You don't have to believe me yet. I'm going to get there. But let's keep going. So why then fear and trembling? Oh, I think a couple reasons, but here's the main one. Our willing, our working, our living, our growing is only found at the gracious hand of God. You're good at engineering? Great. It's because God lets you be. (laughs) you aced calculus and differential equations fantastic god enabled you to see it everything that you have all that you are all that you're capable of all that you have been gifted with is because god allows it it could be perhaps stated this perhaps stated this way it is fear expressed in trembling. We are completely inadequate for this command. We are completely reliant on God and his grace. And this is not window dressing, but rather a matter of life and death to the Christian life to see it accomplished in our lives. We are needy and we are loved. We are desperate and God sees us and supplies our need. See, there's that dance, right? It's that both and. It's when we see this glorious work happening in us, when we begin to taste and see and show the goodness of the Lord and the grace we have been shown in our lives, we begin to radiate with a contagious glow. Have you ever seen someone contagiously glow before? I got to spend some time a few weeks ago with a friend of mine, and they didn't know their picture was being taken at the moment, but it was taken and there was that moment of just the, the overflowing, effervescent gospel work going on in their heart. And you see a radiant glow about them. Maybe you've experienced that too. 
It's that work of being able to begin to taste and see and drink more deeply still of the fountain of grace and be changed. The countenance of a life transformed by the grace of Jesus is unmistakable. But this change in them, this change in me, this change in you is not just for our own betterment. It flows out from us into our community for its transformation as well. Second point, humble contentment. Humble contentment, okay? So there is a fascinating phenomenon that takes place in society. Um, It's that whole identity thing that I talked about earlier. When groups of people align based on what they're against rather than what they're for. Have you encountered that before? All right, so embarrassing story. This is when half the congregation perks up, especially the younger crowd. David's about to say something embarrassing about himself. I have to take notes. All right, so when I was uh, growing up and I was in middle school trying to find my place in the world, no, I can't say that without thinking of the Michael W. Smith song. Now I can't say that without half of you humming it along and you're really mad at me now. At any rate, it's fine. Some of you didn't get it and some of you are going to write me a nasty email later. And it's all right. Um, I uh, decided that I was going to gang up with a friend of mine to bully another friend um, because this is what victims of bullying do. They turn around and do it to other people. And we created this secret society where we were completely against our other person. It's amazing how toxic that can go when you're aligned by what you're against rather than what you're for. We got caught. We got called out. I got grounded. It was a whole thing. Um, Being aligned by what you're opposed to um, weaves into the very fabric of your group a desire to fight. Your purpose is opposition. But what happens if there's nothing to fight? All of a sudden, the bullets start firing at one another. You get trigger happy, right? You get trigger happy and you start tearing at yourself. Friends, can I just, can I say this? The church, big C, has an incredibly abysmal track record at shooting its own wounded. This is abhorrent. I see this so much. I see the, the backbiting, the side talk, the duplicitous chatter. And it's not just in between our own walls. How often I hear about church, mega church A, and it's shallow doctrine, and, and, and trendy church B, and their shallow worship. This snide, arrogant, self-assuredness that, said, that thinks if only they'd get their act together and be more doctrinally precise or liturgically reverent, but not too reverent, not like those smells and bells, churches. Grumble, dispute, isolation, contempt. We all do it. We all have our other that we grumble against. We all have our other that we dispute. Maybe they're here. Maybe they're outside of here. Maybe they're online. Maybe through gossip. Maybe in sanctimonious, well, at least I'm better than dribble. How does Paul say that the church ought to carry itself? What marching orders does Paul give the church? 
Go ahead. Take a look. Do all things without grumbling, fine, or what? Disputing. But we have to stand for the truth or else error. Stop it. Just like righteous anger is not your catch-all for every temper tantrum you have, your indignation that someone parsed theological concept where good people can disagree as A rather than B is not standing for truth as you being pugnacious. We must engage one another in humble contentment. We must engage our non-believing neighbors with humble contentment. It is hard to see with scorn what God desires to save. It is hard to look with compassion on those you hold in contempt. If there is nothing else you hear me say from this pulpit over my time in ministry, however many decades God permits me to stand here at Metrocrest, it is this. You cannot be as those in the world that are salt and light if you hold with scorn what God desires to save and if you hold in contempt what God sees with compassion. These, this exhortation comes in the midst of a culture war. This is not peacetime in Philippi. This is wartime. This is the summons that Paul gives the church. This is their call to action. These are the marching orders. This is the battle cry. But look at how Paul does it. Choosing his words so surgically, so carefully. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. <clears throat> Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be. Now, this is where you got to pay attention. You got to track with me here that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're going to go really fast. Hold on. Paul selects distinctive words and phrases to signal that he is alluding here to Moses' description of the generation of Israelites who experienced the exodus from Egypt but then died in the desert. Okay? The wilderness generation in Exodus 15 verse 24 and in Exodus 16 verse 2 were described as this. They were a people who grumbled against Moses. But keep going, and against the Lord himself in chapter 16, verses 7 through 8. Moses somberly described those Israelites in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, as no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Each of the words Paul now embeds into our present text to call his friends to a radically different response. They must not grumble, and their contentment will show them to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But it goes on, right? Listen, the grace of Jesus is making former pagans in Philippi into the people of God that Israel should have been. 
oh, now there's the gospel doing foolishness right there. The people who had the good deposit, the people that were Israel, had had abandoned God, grumbled against Moses. They were a people that acted as if their world was falling apart. So God now, through Jesus, is taking pagans, Gentiles, Roman citizens, and making them what Israel should have been. Instead of Israel's complaint and criticism about the way that God was running their lives, persecuted Christians can now exhibit thankful contentment. Instead of Israel's self-centered quibbling with each other, Christians can display humility, honor, and compassion towards one another. Instead of Israel's blemished and twisted unbelief showing that they were not really God's children, Jesus' people are unblemished children of God, distinguished by a confidence that holds fast and holds forth. The verb means the same thing. The word of truth. Now that'll preach. Unless, of course, you're offended that God's the one that takes wretched sinners like prostitutes and tax collectors and pagan Gentiles and uses them to be what the religious majority should have been. That you can learn more from the prostitute than the professor. So what does this life in Christ produce? What does it create? Paul says, end of verse 15, that we would shine as lights in the world. So whenever I'm flying back into Dallas, if I'm taking an evening flight back in, I can always tell when I've gotten um, out of like Kansas or Oklahoma and I'm getting back into the metro area because all of a sudden like all the light pollution just kind of fills, um, fills the, the, uh, the atmosphere. When we lived in Georgia. Um, we lived off of a country road that should the power ever be out to the few lights that were there, it would be completely dark. Any light on the road would be visible because it was so rare. So Paul is saying for us that because of who Jesus has made us to be and the way that he is working in us, that we would be just as perceptible, just as noticeable, just as obvious. That selflessness, humility, and others serving, others seeking, Christ honoring, God exalting, spirit filled people would be our light shining forth. It would not be our bumper stickers, our t shirts, our social media campaigns, our private clubs, our insider language. Remember when I preached through the gospel of Mark and we talked about some of the miracles of Jesus in the gospel of Mark? And I said the best way that you can understand miracles is not abnormal things breaking into a normal world, but miracles were normal things breaking into an abnormal world. You remember this? All right. What Paul's saying here, likewise, is that the people of God are not the abnormal ones. We are the normal ones. We are the ones that are exhibiting, wait for it, wait for it, We're exhibiting the way things really ought to be. How much of a call-out culture do you think there's going to be in heaven? Go ahead, I'll wait. 
How much of a, these sodomites are ruining our world is there going to be in heaven? Go ahead, I'll wait. How many people are going to put on team jerseys and be vilified by who they vote for in heaven? Go ahead, I'll wait. See where I'm going? If Christians are the ones that now, as light in the world, they're not shining light into darkness, they're opening a window to the way things really ought to be, what type of world, therefore, is Paul saying the Christian is going to help create? Go ahead, I'll wait. We are the normal breaking into an abnormal world. We are the radiant points of light amid chaos and disorder. But chaos, it can be disorienting, right? So the other day, my kids were spinning around. It was a game. I don't understand. I get up wrong out of my bed and I hurt my back for a week. They can spin and spin and spin and fall down, get up and try again. Oh, to be young. Um, Have you ever spun around so much and then stood up and all of a sudden your horizon point is um, that way? Yeah. Chaos can be disorienting. It can be disorderly. Um, You're not sure what end is up, what end is down, what end is side, what end is side. So Paul gives us a mooring point to hold on to. He says, hold fast to the word of life. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ Jesus, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. As I said in the beginning, quoting from Charles Taylor, in the absence of one truth, there will be all sorts of truths competing and vying for top spot. Just as in Philippi, there were admirable cultural achievements happening all around them. There were political and military organization, transportation and communication infrastructure, architectural wonders, and more. But amid all of that, there were atrocities as well. The beauty of Rome was built on its brutality. You understand that? The beauty of Rome was built on its brutality. By the way, in our 200 plus year history, there's a lot of brutality built into our little story as well. The beauty of Rome was built on its brutality and its prosperity was built on punishment. And we see all this around us today, don't we? We see amid all the achievement and advancement of the world around us, there's a dark underbelly. The world is categorically unjust, and it never promised to be anything other than that. Holding fast, then, to the word of truth offers us comfort that this is not some unexpected twist or turn of event, but is instead well within the expected promise and plan of God. And when I say plan of God, by the way, I need you to understand that what that doesn't mean is God sitting back indifferent to the pain, the injustice, the grief, the sorrow, the lament of what sin has wrought on this world. To hear plan of God does not mean that God is ambivalent or indifferent or even happy that it had to be that way. It means that God will Make every sad thing untrue. And we trust him because he's good and he does what is good. Okay? It leads us to verses 17 and 18. Like I said, pack a snack. It's okay. We're almost done. Deep breath. Breathe in and out. Good. Finally, joyful sacrifice. Got to do a little bit more Old Testament work for this to make sense here for you. 
Paul transitions back now from what the, what's going on with the church to what's going on with him. Okay? Having just told them about being shining lights, he once again raises the possibility that his execution may be imminent. Okay? He raises the possibility that his execution may be intimate. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Okay. What does that mean? Even if I'm to die. But what does that mean, though? What is this, what is this thing that he's leading them back to? Well, he's, he's not trying to be the downer at the party. So let's go back from many, 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 many weeks ago. You've slept a night or two since then, and that's cool. I understand. I don't hang on my every word either. Um, Go back to what it means to have joy. All right, here's the definition that I pose to you. Um, It's a little clunky, but I still stand by it. Joy is an understanding of existence that encompasses both elation and depression, that can accept with submission events which bring delight or dismay because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them all. So Paul's leading them back again, once again, to the theme of joy, but he's doing so as enjoy from the depths, even his own death, whether it occurs, um, whenever it occurs, will be a type of suffering entailed by what it means to be normal in an abnormal world. So Paul says, whatever manner he dies, in whatever way, violently or not, he sees this as an opportunity to enhance the service that other believers offer up to the Lord as they hold fast to the word of truth. How do I get there? In the Old Testament, in the daily burnt offerings that would be offered in either the tabernacle or the temple, the morning and evening offerings, when the lamb is prepared for slaughter, there would also be a drink offering that would be poured out upon the lamb's carcass before it is incinerated to make the offering more fragrant. For those of you who are barbecue enthusiasts, this is a brine. But the point is, the the drink offering adds to the aroma, but the lamb is the main event. Do you see what Paul is saying about his own impending martyrdom here? Go back and look at it now. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad to do it. What does that mean? (laughs) It means... That, it, that whatever happens, I am glad. I'm just the brine. You're the main event. And if you shining bright means that Paul has to suffer more, that's going to be okay with him. Beloved, <laughs> that we by the Spirit, could get to the point that it would be said of us 
an others-focused, Christ-saturated love that says, hey, if your shining leads to my suffering for the glory of Jesus and the expanse of the kingdom, let's do it. Ooh. Because it just brings more radiant glory to Jesus. Like I said at the beginning, Paul's linkage of this passage to the one preceding it is because everything said here hinges on everything that was said there. Maybe it isn't college admissions that that is your functional righteousness, but something else is. Maybe it's your parenting, your marriage, your romance, fitness, food, technology, politics, the list goes on, the list goes on. The sad thing is that all of these things can take on the trappings of religion, complete with much of the ritual, but none of the mercy. None of the mercy. They exact more and more and more and more out of you and offer no mercy in return. Hmm. But you can fall into the same trap as a Christian, can't you? Oh, no, none of those things are my idol. None of those things. I'm fine. But yeah, you can still fall into the same trap. I'm just going to repent, try harder. Maybe God's going to show up and give me what I really want. Where God is an end. Where God becomes a means, not the end. All the ritual. None of the mercy. You can't say, I'll suffer so you can shine. Because you're trying to game Christianity to get something else as your ultimate thing. Paul says for the church, for it, to, for it to be we instead of me, in order for us to see and shine like lights in darkness, that we're not just there as lights to point out what's wrong, but we're there shining like windows to point to what will ultimately be made right. And to that end, Paul says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me, verse 18. Why? Well, it's because joy means that this world isn't taking from you anything because Jesus has already overcome the world and he's put you in the world to love the world and point the world to the one who's loved it more than you or I ever could. Sound overwhelming? Invoke a little bit of fear and trembling? Good. 